And so I just decided to just really dive deep and see what, what are the answers. I just, I got to figure this out. That, folks, is Michael Mjolnicek. And what he said captures the spirit of Anesthesia Guidebook. You're on a path to becoming an expert anesthesia provider, and we're here to help you dig deep so that you can master your craft. I'm John Lawrence, and this episode on succinylcholine will unravel the mysteries and controversies around the medication. From its molecular shape and how that influences which receptor subtypes and location it exerts its effects on, to practical information on dosing and optimizing airway management while mitigating the side effects of succinylcholine. I originally recorded this episode in March of 2018 with Michael and have completely remastered it for Anesthesia Guidebook, including an intermission at about the midway point, which you may need given that we talk about succinylcholine for right at an entire hour. At the time of this recording in 2018, Michael was a second-year student-registered nurse anesthetist at the University of Scranton and a student representative to the AANA Foundation. His background includes experience as a cardiac critical care registered nurse in Austin, Texas. As part of his graduate studies, Michael completed an in-depth project regarding the history, latest research, and controversies surrounding succinylcholine. Michael has presented on succinylcholine at state association conferences and went on to give a podium presentation at the 2018 AANA Annual Congress in Boston titled, Succinylcholine, From Discovery to Current Evidence for Everyday Practice. Michael successfully completed graduate school and began his anesthesia career as a CRNA in the greater Boston area. He continues to contribute to Anesthesia Guidebook, and you'll hear the two of us soon on the three-part series titled The Top Drawer Rundown, which covers the most common IV anesthesia medications found in the top drawer of anesthesia carts in these United States. And with that, let's get to the show. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You were telling me a little bit about your interest in sucks, given some of the controversy <laughs> that you've seen in clinical practice around the use of succinylcholine. So what, what was kind of your motivation uh, from that perspective? Yeah. So being in the clinical setting uh, and watching the work of the CRNAs that I followed, and I, I've noticed that one of the biggest controversies was around the drug succinylcholine. And so it's almost, it was kind of, it was a challenge to figure out whether to use succinylcholine, whether to not use it, how much to give, what the right dose was. And I just felt like it was very inconsistent from provider to provider and what exactly were the contraindications versus indications. And so I just feel like, you know, if this drug has been out for so many years, why, why is there so much inconsistency? And so when I went to the textbook, even uh, Dr. John Nagelhout even says that uh, opinions regarding the use of succinylcholine still remain divided uh, because of its untoward effects. And so I just decided to just really dive deep and see what what are the answers. I just, I got to figure this out. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to chat with you about it. So uh, give us a rundown real quickly. What, what's the story of succinylcholine? So give us a, you know, touch on some of the history and the development yeah. of sux and uh, kind of what you found from reading about it. Well, interestingly enough, uh, succinylcholine was first discovered in 1906 by Reed Hunt and Rene M. Tavia. And when they were doing their experimentation with succinylcholine, they were doing it on animals, administering it. Unfortunately, before they administered the succinylcholine in these animals, they gave them curare, 
And uh, for the audience, if they don't know what curare is, it curare is the first neuromuscular blocker that occurs naturally in uh, plants that were used by the indigenous people of South America. And what they found is that the succinylcholine, they didn't see the paralyzing effects because of the curare that was administered. And so it took f about 40 years before succinylcholine was rediscovered for its paralyzing effects. But obviously they knew that succinylcholine did cause some cardiac changes with the bradycardia and tachycardia, but they, they didn't see anything else useful of it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it is fascinating to think about that, you know, essentially the drug rolled out and then it took another 40 years to realize its uh, neuromuscular blocking potential. Uh, exactly. so, so when did sex come on board as a in clinical anesthesia practice? So before we get to the clinical anesthesia, it actually came to be popular in 1942, uh, actually in 1940 uh, for ECT treatments by a, a psychiatrist in America. And so an anesthesiologist in Montreal named Harold Griffith saw that, you know, there's potential to use paralyzing agents and uh, for surgery. And so in 1942 is when we started using uh, succinylcholine for the first time for surgery and then eventually became very popular in America in 1952. And what's interesting about that is that when they were experimenting with the paralytics like curare and succinylcholine, this anesthesiologist has never told the patient or the surgeon that he was using it, but he did say it was the easiest surgery he's ever performed. And so it is quite interesting that the uh, protective uh, laws were not uh, observed during that time for research patients. Yeah, in terms of like open communication about what you're doing. So somebody's exactly. administering sucks, but not really informing uh, at least the rest of the surgical team what's going on. But alas, surgical conditions were a lot easier when they were using it. And that's correct. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, pretty cool, man. Any Anything else about the history that you want to share about sucks before we move on to how it works? Uh, it's just important to recognize that curare, which is a non-depolarizer, was the first non-depolarizing paralytic that we've used. And so succinylcholine came along a few years later after it was just made popular, knowing how paralytics can be somewhat beneficial. Um, so it's just good to appreciate curare or the trade name of detubocurane, uh, which is actually also interesting because the tubocurane actually the, uh, stands for the tube that the indigenous people use to blow the darts through. So hence the name tubocurane. That is very interesting. I think it's it's also important to note, it's fascinating that, you know, Sucks has essentially been around since the, the early 50s, you know, late 40s, early 50s. And yet today, as we talk here in 2018, there's still a lot of controversy around its use, which I, I was also surprised when I came, came on board as an anesthesia provider that the controversies tend to create a lot of variation in practice, oftentimes based upon people's, you know, cultural exposure to anesthesia practices, you know, what, what they typically do at their location or their anesthesia team. And that some of those controversies, you know, it's, it's largely around provider opinion as to how they use sex, which we'll get into when we talk about, you know, managing myalgias and that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm, exactly, it's, it's fascinating. It's been around for that long, but we still have some questions about its use. And uh, as, we'll, as we'll talk about here in a few minutes, um, its role in the future uh, with things like RSI and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Well, let's shift gears and let's chat about the chemistry of succinylcholine and its use throughout the body and, you know, the prevalence of its use on nicotinic versus muscarinic receptors. So chat a little bit about that. Absolutely. So as we all know, being anesthesia providers, it was drilled into us that succinylcholine is essentially two acetylcholine molecules linked together. 
And so what's interesting is that because it's so similar to acetylcholine, I was pondering the question as to why doesn't succinylcholine just go to every receptor that accepts acetylcholine? And so just to remind our, uh, the audience, that would be all the muscarinic receptors in the body and the ganglionic receptors in the body as well. And so when I did a lot of research on it, it wasn't exactly in the textbook, um, but there was more focus on the reasons for why succinylcholine goes towards the muscular nicotinic receptors. And uh, it's more in pharmacology, pharmacology studies. And the only thing I really found was that there is a law called the Beer and Reaches Law. And basically what this law states is that the size of the molecule will determine whether it goes towards the muscarinic receptor versus the nicotinic receptor. And so the smaller the molecule is, the more it's going to lean towards the muscarinic receptor, while the larger the molecule is, the more it's going to lean towards the nicotinic receptor. And so I thought that was quite interesting, given that the size is what makes the difference. And, and how does that interplay with succinylcholine specifically? So if you look at a picture of the chemical structure of acetylcholine, you'll see that it's it, it is quite small in comparison to any paralytic drug. And so when you look at succinylcholine, it's almost exactly, uh, I, if, you, if you go from one molecule to the other side of the molecule, it's 14 molecules going across it, yeah. while an acetylcholine has eight molecules going across it. And so then I was thinking, what about atropine or things that also go towards these receptors that accept acetylcholine? And so you'll find that atropine is only 11 molecules across. So it's actually smaller than succinylcholine, hence the affinity towards the muscarinic receptor that we expect from atropine. And so when we look at the receptors, there's also something that's specific to succinylcholine that makes it have an affinity for these receptors. And that's that nicotinic receptors are made of five proteins. And so we call these proteins subunits. And um, what's interesting is that every single nicotinic receptor has a specific arrangement of these receptors. And so the muscular nicotinic receptors essentially have a alpha subunit, beta subunit, and a gamma subunit. But what distinguishes it from going from one nicotinic receptor to the other is the exact alignment of the subunits. So for example, if you are looking at a adult muscular nicotinic receptor, they're going to have to have two alpha subunits, a beta subunit, a gamma, and an epsilon subunit. But if you're looking at a nicotinic receptor at the ganglia, they're going to have alpha-3 subunits and beta-4 subunits, and that's it. That's what they're made out of. And so it's almost like, if you think of it like a door and key concept, the lock of the door will have a very specific combination that will only accept certain molecules that will attach to it. And while the same exact concept applies to the drugs that we provide that go to these acetylcholine-accepting receptors. And so what's interesting is that every single neuromuscular blocker that we provide has a specific key to it. And so that key is um, a quaternity amine structure. So if you look at, if you go to Google, and you just type in neuromuscular blocker structures, you will see the exact same chemistry of a quaternity ammonium cation where there's a nitrogen on each end. 
and these nitrogen groups is what finds attraction to those alpha subunits of that specific lock in that receptor. That's what's very interesting. And so that's where a lot of issues arise, which we'll talk about in the future, is that if you alter these subunits, uh, that's where you can get some potentially life-threatening events from succinylcholine, which we'll talk about uh, when we get to the side effects of succinylcholine. Yeah, and to swing back on on where you started with that, which I think all of that is very interesting. So you're saying that succinylcholine, because of its size, of its molecule structure, and the particular characteristics of the adult muscular nicotinic receptor, it's got an affinity for those receptors over uh, the muscarinic receptors of the parasympathetic nervous system. Exactly. And and that's what's interesting is that if you... And, and so then this will lead to the next question I had, which provides the answer is, well, if that's the case, why do we get a fasciculation with succinylcholine administration? And it, it comes down to the molecule size again. The only difference between a depolarizer and non-depolarizer is, is very simple. I thought it was going to be a very complex answer when I was looking for it, but it just comes down to the size of the molecule itself. And so if you look at the size of the molecule, for example, rocaronium, vecaronium, cisatricurium, you'll see that these molecules are really large. And when you compare those molecule sizes to something like succinylcholine, you'll see that succinylcholine is much smaller. And so because of that small size, when succinylcholine comes to attach to the receptor, it's so small that it doesn't actually block the ions exchanging, while the other uh, non-depolarizers are so big that they don't even allow for the ions to exchange because of how big that molecule is when it attaches. So it was just a really simple answer when I was looking for for the difference. That is interesting, which leads to uh, the the two fundamentally different types of blockades so are, are exactly. the, the depolarizing effects of succinylcholine versus the non-depolarizing effects of the neuromuscular junction of all the other paralytics that we use. Exactly. So if someone says, why do we have fasciculations or why do we have depolarization? It's just a simple answer of the size of the drug. And that's all it came down to. Right. Well, that is that is very fascinating. We're going to touch more on fasciculations here in a minute and their relationship or perhaps lack thereof to myalgias. But let's shift quickly to some practical dosing of succinylcholine. What did you find in terms of how to use sex clinically? So this was quite interesting too, was, was the dosing. And so clinically, what I found is I've had providers tell me, give the least amount possible so that you get less myalgia afterwards or that we have just enough time just to intubate, but we want them to come back breathing quickly. Um, and then I've found other providers say, just give the whole stick of whatever is in there. So whether it's 200 milligram or 100 milligram stick of succinylcholine. And so, you know, I wanted to see what truly is the dosing of yeah. succinylcholine. And so a lot of my research comes from meta-analyses that were done on succinylcholine specifically, or I took a lot of this information from the current textbooks of 2015 Miller, 2017 Nagelhaven, and 2017 Barish on uh, anesthesia. The textbooks all agree that you will have paralysis with a 0.3 milligram per kilogram dosage for every patient. Paralysis will occur. Ideally, you want paralysis that is quick and lasts for a, a good amount of time, in this case, about five to 10 minutes. And so the textbooks say that one milligram per kilogram would be 
optimal for intubating conditions. And then the duration, all these textbooks also agree that 5 to 10 minutes, 7 to 12 minutes is, is the duration with that dosage. What we do find is that later on we're going to speak about, well, is even though that's the dosage for ideal intubating conditions, is there a dosage that's better for side effects? Should we give less to prevent the side effects or maybe should we give more? And so that's when I found more in, uh, information that we'll speak about regarding the side effects of that we expect from succinylcholine. Another thing with dosing too, I just wanted to say is Miller made an interesting point uh, stating that if you anticipate that your patient is going to desaturate rather quickly, they actually recommend providing a dose of about 0.6 milligrams per kilogram to decrease the amount of desaturation that could occur from the muscular uh, fasciculations that, that use the oxygen up. And also just for special, special considerations, obese patients should be dosed on actual body weight. So if you do have someone who is 200 kilograms, ideally you should give 200 milligrams uh, to that patient. And then uh, pediatric patients are actually more resistant. And so they actually recommend 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV or 3 milligrams per kilogram in the infant because of their water-dominant habitus. And uh, for laryngospasm, is recommended 0.2 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV. And for the IM dose, we're looking at 4 to 5 milligrams per kilogram IM for, for the laryngospasm dose. That's awesome. So, yeah, so that was the, the general consensus on the dosing of succinylcholine. Yeah, I think that's great. It's great to get all of that out there, that uh, to dose on actual body weight for obese patients to recognize that children need a higher dose. And then what we uh, also touched on was that the, the consensus from all of the leading textbooks on anesthesia is that uh, a milligram per kilogram of actual body weight is the dose that we're shooting for for adults, for intubating exactly. conditions. And then as we touched on, We'll uh, slip over to talk about contraindications briefly, and then when we come around to side effects, we'll look at some alternative dosing suggestions from the literature in terms of you know dealing with hypoxia, as you alluded to there, and then also uh, mm -hmm. myalgias. So, but briefly, let's touch on the contraindications of succinylcholine. Yeah, so unfortunately, succinylcholine does have a very long list of contraindications. So one of the big ones is pretty much anyone at risk for developing hyperkalemia. And so in my research, what I found is that one of the most susceptible patients to hyperkalemia is actually patients who have severe metabolic acidosis and hypovolemia. And so this comes from the Miller book. They really stress this is that if you give succinylcholine to, let's say, someone you go to the ICU and they are just acidotic and they have uh, some kind of gut problem, uh, and they're very hypovolemic, that actually, uh, for some reason, succinylcholine has an affinity for the muscarinic receptors in the bowel, causing it to release even more potassium than just in your muscles. In the so, state of metabolic acidosis with hypovolemia. In the state of metabolic acidosis and hypovolemia. Yeah. And so that's one of the big ones uh, in regards to the contraindication of succinylcholine with hyperkalemia. And so that's a big one. And, and what they recommend is even giving bicarb and hyperventilating them before you give succinylcholine if you really need the most ideal intubating conditions. Yeah, that's interesting. So what do you think, what did you find in terms of just a, a context of hyperkalemia, maybe in renal failure patients with succinylcholine? So someone with renal failure, if they're on dialysis, it's, it's very easy to treat. You know, you know that the, the potassium could be lowered if they had dialysis in an appropriate time uh, manner. But if someone has progressively worsening renal disease and they 
are just not on dialysis yet, but their potassium is quite high, especially with recent labs, you would really want to be precautious into giving that succinylcholine. Granted, though, that the succinylcholine only uh, for a healthy individual will bring the, uh, the potassium levels up only about 0.5 to 1, and it lasts about 10 to 15 minutes. And that's so an important that's point to make. So just to, to highlight and clarify what you said, in terms of renal failure with hyperkalemia, when you were talking about um, having dialysis in an appropriate time frame, you're talking about preoperatively uh, to, exactly. to optimize their preoperative dialysis. Just to clarify, obviously, that's it's not using dialysis as, as a tool to treat the bump of potassium that you'll see from administration of succinylcholine. It's exactly. it's it's significant enough that with you know profound hyperkalemia, you, your patient could experience some of the untoward effects cardiovascularly from hyperkalemia. But it's transient enough that you're not going to do anything with that with uh, dialysis acutely. So we're talking about optimizing them pre-induction. That is correct. Yeah. So re, you know, we have to think about your renal patients. Is the what's my most recent potassium? Where are they optimized with their dialysis? Another thing I th that we have to think about with regards to hyperkalemia is, as we know, the muscular issues that are chronic in individuals, and so. I was looking at why do the patients with muscular issues like Eaton-Lambert syndrome or ALS develop such profound hyperkalemia compared to the healthy individual? And it really all comes down to the nicotinic receptors that we were speaking about earlier. And so what happens is the, uh, the patient who doesn't have muscular tone and loses it through some kind of chronic muscle disorder, will develop something called fetal nicotinic muscular receptors. And literally, these are just upregulated receptors that our body will make in response to trying to get the muscle to work again. Yeah. But unfortunately, these new receptors have a much higher affinity for succinylcholine than regular adult receptors, and they stay open for a much longer of time. And so because they stay open for so long and they have such a high affinity and they, they, and they open up much larger um, effluxes of potassium. And so you get a much profound potassium rise than uh, the typical adult would with the 0.5 to 1 milliequivalents. So you're looking at possibly getting someone their potassium up by almost 3.1, according to Miller, of a potassium level increase. So they really puts them at risk for that good 10 minutes. Of and that, that's a, that's a 3.1 milliquint per liter increase over wherever increase. they are baseline. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. So that would be all, all of the kind of, you know, muscular disorders in terms of either acute paraplegia, muscular dystrophies, mm -hmm. Guillain-Barre, those kind of things. Exactly. So it's just all it is is just that not a good nicotinic receptor uh, that causes this profound hyperkalemia. That's very interesting. What other um, contraindications did you come across? Uh, so other contraindications I was uh, looking at is obviously pediatric patients. So what I found in my research is that I guess in the 90s, uh, there were a lot of uh, children dying from succinylcholine administration due to rhabdomyolysis and hyperkalemia. And then the, unfortunately, these children fell into uh, ventricular dysrhythmias and cardiac arrest. And so because of the amount of pediatric patients dying, especially children under the age of eight, the FDA put a black box warning to just don't take the chance with sucks unless it's an emergency situation like a laryngospasm. And so 
if you can avoid it for a child, it's definitely advised um, because of this muscular issue that is usually found later in their age life. And to touch on that, what muscular issues are you really concerned about in pediatrics not being aware of that you may find out later uh, on? The big one is that Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is, yeah. is the big one that we, we speak about. Um, and another thing is, too, it, I mean, it may not – it's something to think about as well as um, it brings me to the topic of malignant hyperthermia and, and whether there is some genetic predisposition with these kids um, because of the higher occurrence of the masseter spasm and causing a malignant hyperthermic reaction. That is That is very interesting, which runs down a whole other rabbit hole as well exactly. in terms of – the genetic research on MH and also the interplay with succinylcholine and the the incidence uh, of mm-hmm. triggering MH, which is interesting to think about. Yes. And so going down to the MH path where that's obviously a true, it is a contraindication to using succinylcholine. I did find in my research that there isn't too much information regarding whether succinylcholine is a causation versus a correlation. And so Unfortunately, they, we don't have true research, nor can you do a, a ethical experiment on whether succinylcholine is the triggering event of malignant hyperthermia because what do we often do right after we provide that succinylcholine is we put the gas on. And so a lot of the studies just show that it's either succinylcholine with the gas that exacerbates it, could be just the sucks by itself or could be the gas by itself, but we don't truly know, but we definitely don't take our chances with that. Yeah, that's interesting. So pediatric patients under eight, only in a true emergency like a laryngospasm. We talked about hyperkalemia. We talked about MH. Uh, What other contraindications? Uh, Yeah, so the list goes on, right? Uh, Actually, and something else I wanted to point out too is that according to the new Nagel Health textbook 2017, there's two neurological disorders, chronic neurological disorders that we can still give succinylcholine for and uh, those two things is actually myasthenia gravis and Huntington's disease. And so I just wanted to touch base on myasthenia gravis. If you think about what happens in that disease process, it's an autoimmune disorder that breaks down the uh, muscular nicotinic receptors. And so because those receptors are being broken down, you actually don't need that much succinylcholine to paralyze someone because they have less than the average person. And so that's why it's not a contraindication in that aspect because it's the receptors themselves that's an issue, not the muscles. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And so the other thing too is my, what do a, a lot of patients with uh, myasthenia gravis take is a uh, anticholinesterase so they can increase the amount of acetylcholine at the receptor site. And so if you have a more acetylcholinesterase at the receptor site and provide succinylcholine, you will have a prolonged succinylcholine effect. Um, of paralysis. And then Huntington's disease is also is one of the other muscular disorders where you can still give it. And so other contraindications that are controversial is um, the first one we can talk about is intraocular pressure. And so going through my research to see should succinylcholine be given with patients who are at risk with increased intraocular pressure. And what I found is that succinylcholine does increase intraocular pressure in about the first four minutes and it goes away in six minutes, about six minutes. But what they found is that defasciculating doses provide a significant decrease in the incidence of increased ocular pressure. Yeah. And multiple textbooks say, if you're so worried about the intraocular pressure and succinylcholine, but yet you 
are more worried about the airway, airway should be the concern. So you have optimal intubating conditions. Yeah. Um, and so they, what they recommend is having the, the smoothest induction process possible because the bucking and the coughing and the um, digging around for an airway might cause much worse uh, intraocular pressures than just the fasciculations expected from succinylcholine. Yeah. So they actually vouch for just using it if you feel like it would be the best case scenario for the patient for intraocular pressure. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think you highlight an important consideration when you think about you know, how do you make decisions around which medications to use in any given situation? And it's, it's ultimately a, a multifactorial judgment call where the clinician's got to make a choice. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a risk versus benefit analysis is what informs our decisions a lot in anesthesia. And succinylcholine is definitely one of those things. It's super exactly. important to understand the context of what's happening. So it's not just that sucks could potentially do a transient increase in intraocular pressure or you know, ICP or intragastic pressure, which I'm sure you'll touch on in a moment. But yes. but what what else could contribute to those increased pressures, perhaps in a more significant way? So really controlling your entire induction sequence. And then if sucks is really the concern, uh, you know, you could always switch over and use something like rocuronium at a higher dose for RSI, which we'll touch mm-hmm. on here in a minute Absolutely. with RSI. So the, the, the next contraindication that we think about is the increased intragastric pressures. And so we know that with succinylcholine, it actually kind of evens itself out where the lower esophageal sphincter pressure increases, but the abdominal muscles uh, will fasciculate and cause an increase in pressure. So it kind of just nets itself zero. And so what's interesting is that the fasciculations, they, they say that it could increase pressure and not be advisable. But the textbooks that, I'm, that I was reading, including Miller and Nagelhout, say that if you give a non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent for a defasciculating dose, that no increased IGP was observed in any of their uh, studies that they cited. Yeah. And even more interesting is that kids, pediatrics, do not get any increase in their intragastric pressures because of the minimal fasciculations seen in the uh, pediatric populations. And so they said it's safe if you need to give it to a child who emergently needs it, but you're worried about the intracastric pressures is okay. Yeah, that um, is interesting to note. Yes. What about increased ICP, intracranial pressure? Oh, yes. ICP, I find, is one of the most controversial topics regarding contraindications with succinylcholine. And as I read through these textbooks, every single one says that pretreatment with succinylcholine does not increase ICP. If you do give succinylcholine without a defasciculating dose, you could get a rise of 10 to 15 millimeters of mercury for five to eight minutes. But at the end of the day, even in a textbook I was reading for neurosurgical anesthesia, it actually recommended that if you can get a smoother induction with succinylcholine and pretreat with a, with a defasciculating dose, that it's actually advisable in comparison to not having optimal intubating conditions. And so a lot of it is controversial, and I just feel like, especially in the new textbooks, that if you need succinylcholine to intubate someone who you think may be difficult and you need to optimize your conditions, according to the textbooks, it's advisable to use succinylcholine as your first choice, regardless of ICP levels. Yeah, and, and ideally, that's with the... Uh, defasciculating dose. With a defasciculating dose. And just to clarify, yes. I think when you started that, you'd said that there was no 
uh, increase in ICP with pretreatment of succinylcholine, but I think what you what you meant and what oh. you clarified was that with pretreatment with a with a non-depolarizing or a neuromuscular blocker, which would be a defasciculating dose prior to giving the succinylcholine. Yes, that's right. Yep. I, I just made yep. a little mistake there, but that, yeah, that's and, fine. So, any other contraindications before I think we should switch gears and go ahead and talk about this defasciculating dose and what that is? I don't believe there is. And just one more thing I just wanted yeah. to let you all know is that also with ICP uh, and decreasing that increased pressure all throughout the body is that don't forget, even though defasciculating is what I keep saying, giving lidocaine also helps significantly too. And so giving that defasciculating dose with a with a bolus of lidocaine will really help with a lot of these adverse effects from the increased pressures throughout the body. And that's on induction? And that's on induction, correct. And what dose of lidocaine are you talking about? Uh, we're talking about like a standard, so like about 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilograms that we usually give to decrease the burning and propofol. But if you can give that lidocaine, especially with succinylcholine, not just for the propofol burning, the vein would be very beneficial to help with your side effects from those pressure increases. Yeah, it helps blunt the sympathetic response to laryngoscopy in general at, at those dosages. And I did see, which we're not there yet, I know we're going to talk about it, but it uh, had a little bit of effect on reducing uh, post-op myalgias with sucks too. What up, folks? How you doing? You hanging in there? You're halfway there. Here's a little intermission for you. This is an hour-long podcast. Research has shown that most people prefer educational podcasts that last around 20 minutes. And right now, you might be thinking, yeah, I get that. But here's the thing. Anesthesia is complicated. It's nuanced. There's substantial technical science behind what we do, as well as an art form in the way that we put that science into action. At Anesthesia Guidebook, we'll bring you a mix of both deep dives and shorter, more practical rundowns. I want you to have both. And by your listens and feedback, you've told me that you're up for that. In the five plus years that From the Head of the Bed was online, this show, the one you're listening to, the hour-long show on one medication was the most downloaded episode of all. So I won't ever count you out as being unwilling to go deep on a topic. If you have thoughts or feedback, drop us a review or comment on Apple Podcasts so that everyone can see what you have to say. I also love getting your emails. Either way, your feedback has shaped the evolution of Anesthesia Guidebook. Keep it coming. And with that, let's get back to defasciculation doses. Let's talk about defasciculation. What is that and how do you provide that for patients? So defasciculating doses, uh, I found this to be very widely variable between clinicians where I agree some with anesthesiologists, you. yeah, some anesthesiologists I'm with did not like that I gave a defasciculating dose with my inductions. And so after being questioned and questioning the providers to see what their opinion was on it, a lot of the uh, responses was that, well, you want to see the fasciculations to know when you're ready to intubate was one reason. Interesting. Another reason, yeah, another reason was if you give a defasciculating dose, then you're going to, it's almost like you're fighting yourself by giving succinylcholine competing for that same receptor. And okay. so, so, you know, I can kind of see their arguments, but I wanted to, that's why I was like, should I give a defasciculating dose whenever possible and when should I not give yeah. it? And so the defasciculating doses, first off, what is it for? When you are doing your induction, if you can give a specific amount of a non-depolarizing drug, about 1.5 minutes minimum to two minutes before you administer your succinylcholine, you can 
decrease a lot of the side effects that succinylcholine had, performs on the, uh, the patient. Uh, so what I wanted to do is just see how much to give. A lot of the research I found was the defasciculating dose. Uh, first off is we usually, in the clinical setting, realistically, we, we give about one amount of whatever the non-depolarizing drug that we are getting ready to administer throughout the case. I would agree and with so, you. I see that yeah. most often. Uh, just give a mil of whatever it is. And give an ml of whatever yeah. it is. And yeah. so I was like, is that right? Is it not right. right? What's the true dosing on that? And so first off, what I found is that the textbook answer is 10% of ED95 of the non-depolarizing drug. But realistically, no one's going to calculate that before they do their induction. And so what I did find is that there were some studies that I found that look to see what is the best dose to not provide your patient weakness, uh, the feelings of weakness, but still prevent those adverse uh, side effects we were just speaking of before. And so what they recommend is um, 0.04 milligrams per kilogram of rock was one recommendation from Dr. Nagelhaus' textbook. And so 0.04 milligrams per kg, if you really think about it, if you just take 4% of whatever that patient's weight is, or even if you want to round it to make it easier, 5%. If so, if they weigh 100 kilograms, that's about 4 milligrams or 5 milligrams. And so if you think about how much 4 milligrams or 5 milligrams is in that syringe, that's only a half a cc for a 100-kilogram patient. Yeah, if it's I, a 10 milligram per ml a rocaronium vial. Right. I think this is a very interesting topic that a lot of people – have heard about and, and maybe, I don't know, I, th I think in my experience, people have developed their, their practices um, a little loosely around defasciculation. And so mm -hmm. I think it's an important concept to understand. And there's there's a couple things to point out which you're working on. is like, what's the appropriate timing? What's the appropriate dose? And what's the reason and rationale? And what are some of the risks associated with defasciculation? Which you, you mentioned yes. that is that, so the idea is that you're given this, you know, a minute and a half to two or even three minutes prior to succinylcholine. So if that's an RSI, you're, you're giving that before your induction agent, really. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you so, wanna, so what I found is from the study is, okay, so let me make this simple for me because that's what was really uh, taught well to me from, uh, from a class I took with Dr. Nagelhau was make things simple for yourself, right? Make things. He's like, don't go at the ranges. Don't think about this and that. Just make a number that works for you. So if I think about it, what's the defasciculating dose? I want to do 5% of their weight. So I'm pretty close to that 0 0.04 for rocaronium. And then for vecaronium, they recommend about 0.3 milligrams across the board. And so 0.3 milligrams, that's really a third a cc. Point, um, 0.3 milligrams regardless of, of weight? Regardless of weight from, their, from another study. So yeah. these were just studies looking at, okay, this one will do a weight base. This one will just do it. Uh, this study will look at ex just... 0.3 milligrams for everyone, regardless of weight. Yeah. And so they found that it worked great. And so what they did find too from the study is that once you reach that one ml amount of whatever non-depolarizing drug you're using, that one ml actually caused too much weakness in their populations. And so they recommend just keeping it at this lower dose. So if I think about it, I would want to use no more than half a cc. And it really what the most important thing is the timing. So if you can get it 1.5 minutes minimum before your induction start, you have optimized your defasciculating dosaging and timing. Yep. I think it's a very interesting concept. One of the studies I came across was from the Journal of Anesthesia in 2011, and it was a, a randomized trial that looked at 
you know, the optimal dose of a defasciculation dose. And they also found essentially what you're talking about. So the, you know, mm-hmm. in typical practice, people will talk about, well, yeah, 10% of whatever your intubating dose, you know, vecuronium or rocuronium. So this group looked at that 10% dose, uh, or, which, which would be 0.06 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium compared to mm-hmm. half that dose, which is also what you're talking about, which is a 5% dose of your typical intubating, which was 0.03 milligrams per kilogram. Mm-hmm. And they looked at, you know, there were some limitations to the study. These people were already under general anesthesia and they really honed in on the time it took to lose fade essentially on train of four. But it was interesting that the lower dose, the 5% dose range of 0.03 milligrams per kilogram maintained a train of four of over 0.9 up to three minutes after the administration where the, the typical dose of 0.06 showed a significant de- decrease of less than 0.6 train of four, uh, which mm-hmm. would be synonymous with, you know, clinically significant neuromuscular blockade. So uh, again, just to highlight that for folks, which which you've done a great job doing, if you're given that 10% defasciculation dose prior to induction and allowing adequate time for it to set up so that it's actually effective, there's a real risk that your patient could experience clinically significant weakness in terms Absolutely. of the you know the inability to swallow, the difficulty breathing, all of that kind of stuff. So if you're timing your defasciculation dose correctly, which is ahead of induction, uh, it's really recommended to decrease that down to five percent of you know your typical um, intubating dose. Absolutely. And another point to bring up too is well, at my facility, I only use atricurium or cisatricurium, is there a difference? And the answer to that is no, there is not. And looking at this meta-analysis that was done from, it was, I believe, about 40 to 50 comparisons of studies for defasciculating dosages found that there was absolutely no difference in efficacy between any of the non-depolarizing drugs, including pancuronium, which I found really interesting. Uh, so really, you can use any non-depolarizing drug and just Think about giving about 5% of that, like we just talked about, ideally in 1.5 minutes or more beforehand. That is so. that is interesting. Well, so let's bring it home on defasciculation. So so there's there's a rationale behind defasciculation is that you're preventing the fasciculations. And along mm-hmm. with that, so you're preventing this widespread muscle contraction throughout the body. And in light of that, you may be preventing all of those negative side effects that we just talked about, increased ICP, increased intragastric pressure, increased intraocular pressure, potentially less of a potassium dump, potentially less of an oxygen consumption due to fasciculation. So so there's a lot of benefits to defasciculation, but I hope that we've been clear for the listeners that there's a correct way to do defasciculation, which is uh, in summary about 5% of your intubating dose of a non-depolarizer given one and a half to two or three minutes prior to your administration of succinylcholine. And then how does defasciculation increase the dose of succinylcholine that you should give? Yes. So actually there was a, in one of the textbooks I found that they recommend that if you're giving a defasciculating dose, they recommend going up in your succinylcholine administration dosage. And so I, I believe this was in Miller. They, they recommend giving 1.5 to 2 milligrams per kilogram IV and just don't even think about the 1 milligram per kilogram anymore. So I found that quite interesting yeah. that you do need to go up because essentially you are competing a little bit for your receptors to you get are. blocked. 
Right. Uh, and so, and because you're competing, you need more of a succinylcholine dose to to take over those antagonized receptors. Exactly. Exactly. And to round off on defasciculation and kind of the complexities around our thinking with that, again, one way to avoid a lot of the negative side effects of succinylcholine is to not use it. You could you mm-hmm. could reach for you know rocuronium or or even non-paralytics for an RSI like. Uh, your induction agent plus remifentanil or something like that. So, But that's not what our podcast is about. We're talking about sucks. So let's stay on that vein. Anything else that you want to mention in terms of side effects, contraindications, sure. or defasciculation? Another big topic that I was really interested in is the postoperative myalgias. And I feel like being a new clinician in the anesthesia world, that I was a big shock for me, especially coming from the ICU, was you want your patients to come in into their surgery having their anesthesia and coming out of it with almost no change in them whatsoever. So no cut lips, no multiple sticks for IVs, making them as pain-free as possible, just providing an overall good experience for that person. And of course, that should always be our goal. But when it comes down to it, there's also competition between hospitals and and seeing where can I get the best anesthesia operative experience possible. And so... So this brings me to my next topic is the myalgias. Surprisingly, I found that myalgias occur quite often. It's reported in multiple textbooks that the incidence is about 50-60% of all patients who get succinylcholine will probably get myalgia. And so this myalgia actually peaks 24 hours after succinylcholine was administered. And so because it peaks 24 hours, a lot of the time we don't even know about it unless you do post-operative rounds several days out from the surgery. And so unfortunately, these myalgias can cause a lot of problems for the patients with not just their experience, but also with their post-operative ambulation and prolonging their hospital stay. And so I found that that was actually one of the biggest reasons that clinicians try to avoid giving succinylcholine is the myalgia side effect. And so I wanted to really touch base on this for myalgias and how to prevent it and what the, the research shows First thing that is noted is that when someone fasciculates, we expect them to probably have myalgia after the fasciculations. But looking at this large meta-analysis was that 50% of the people who fasciculated had myalgia and the other 50% of the people who had fasciculations had no myalgia. So there was no correlation with fasciculations leading to myalgia. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Are you talking about the Schreiber article from 2005? Yes, I okay. am speaking of that one. Yeah, yep. so, so prevention of succinylcholine-induced fasciculation and myalgia. It's anesthesiology mm-hmm. in 2005. Super interesting article. I'm going to let you keep talking, but we'll definitely link to this meta-analysis of multiple randomized control trials on this topic in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So keep going. And, yep, so like I said, so the myalgias happened 24 hours later. There's no correlation. And in the textbooks, they now state that fasciculations have don't have a true correlation to myalgias. And so what they're also finding is that the most common areas of the myalgias are in the subcostal area, trunk area, in the neck, abdomen, and shoulders. And they said that actually the incidence is the highest in women and also in people who don't perform muscular exercise. And so it kind of, in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I haven't been in the gym in a while, and then I go to the gym for the first time. I work out really hard, and you really feel that pain the next day. Uh, so I, that's what I feel like. It's, it's similar to something like that feeling. Yeah. And the patients who are least affected 
were basically the extremes of age and pregnant women. So someone who is pregnant or someone who is very, very young or very, very old will very likely not experience myalgia. So this leads to, you know, well, if myalgia is this common, so what can we do to prevent it? This was the most interesting part that I found is that giving a larger dose of succinylcholine actually caused less myalgia for these patients. And I was just so surprised reading that. And then I was like, is this even in the textbook? Because I'm not sure if that's true. So I was just second, because I've heard the opposite being in the clinical setting. And uh, if you go in the Nagelhout textbook, it actually says giving larger upfront doses of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram to prevent myalgias is supported uh, in the textbook. And so then I was looking further and I was like, why does a large dose of succinylcholine, larger doses of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram or higher, cause less myalgia? And what I found is that when we give succinylcholine, especially one milligram per kilogram or less, uh, we'll find that if you look at a, a, a receptor, the receptor links to mus multiple muscles. And so if we give that one milligram per kilogram, it doesn't hit every single receptor. Because succinylcholine, when you administer it, only 10% of your actual drug reaches the receptor site. The rest gets all metabolized. And which, so, which, really is a, which is a fascinating piece on the metabolism of succinylcholine. Exactly. Yeah. So you think you're giving... 100 milligrams, but really only 10 milligrams is circulating at the receptor sites themselves because that's just how fast it gets metabolized in circulation. So if you're only using 10% of it, you want to make sure you give an optimal dose. And so because it seems like we're kind of underdosing with the one milligram per kilogram at the receptor sites themselves, uh, what you'll find is that some receptors get fired and the others don't. And so the theory behind it is that you're actually causing micro tears where one muscle contracts, but the muscle right under that doesn't contract. And so it's almost like you're not letting it slide against each other. So I just think of it as like, if you're going to contract your muscles to lift an object up, you're not going to use half your muscles and let the other half stay uh, rested. You want to contract everything like one full contraction and one full release. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Just give more succinylcholine to prevent myalgia. It's super interesting. And when I have done that and then explained that rationale clinically, the people I work with typically look at me like I've got two or three heads yep. and they're super skeptical of that. But yes. just to hammer that on, that's, that's very clear in the literature that a dose of 1.5 milligrams of succinylcholine per kilogram does reduce post-op myalgias over the typical intubating dose, which is 0.6 to 1 milligram per kilogram. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so that the percentage on that from this meta-analysis that was looking at it was it's about a 20% decrease in the incidence of myalgia. So if we're already looking at 50, 60% of people who already get it, so if, if you can you decrease your chances by 20%, you know, you're really looking at a, a pretty strong yeah. uh, way to prevent the, the post-op and myalgia. And, uh, and then another thing too that was highly recommended is uh, making sure that you give lidocaine and a defasciculating dose to really optimize the uh, decreased incidence of postoperative myalgia. And what also I found interesting is that opioids absolutely do nothing for helping with the pain or prevention for these postoperative myalgias. That's right. It's really just all, it's a system-wide inflammatory response in your muscles. And so opioids are not an anti-inflammatory. And so what they did find is that if someone does have myalgia, the best medicine that worked was NSAIDs to yep. 
help with the pain. And it also and NSAIDs are an effective preventative therapy, but they need to be given prior to the administration of succinylcholine, which often people find you know a complicating factor because they're concerned about the risk of bleeding intraoperatively. Uh, mm-hmm. But preventative administration of NSAIDs prior to induction does show a reduction of post-op myalgia if you're giving succinylcholine. And, exactly. And then, as you said, they are also effective at treating myalgias um, if the patient happens to have myalgias post-op. Exactly. So what I would do is I would think, okay, if I have a patient, I, I, I have to use sucks on this patient. Um, and let's say they're a 40-year-old male, you know, average size build, and I'm using sucks on them. I would try to consider, I want to make sure I want to use my lidocaine, my defaciculating dose. And then I also want to try to consider maybe using Toradol towards the end of the case, just to think of something that will help with the pain the most because giving just the rest of your fentanyl syringe or something to prevent that post-operative myalgia won't work, but something right. like an NSAID for long-term may be really beneficial for them. Yeah, that is right. And it is interesting. There, there is some controversy in the literature around whether or not that defasciculation dose will reduce post-op myalgias. I think in some studies it's says that perhaps it might, and others that showed that there's no difference in post-op myalgias if mm-hmm. you reduce fasciculations, which goes back to the link between fasciculations and myalgias, that it's not a clear, linear cause and effect relationship, that some people have profound fasciculations and they don't have any post-op myalgias. Other people don't really have fasciculations, whether they just don't have them or you give a defasciculation dose, but yet they still have post-op myalgias. Exactly. So, you just never know. Yeah. So it's so a little it's, unclear. It's a- Literally, it's 50-50 chance, so, and that's what you have to go by. And, and also, I just want to point out that, in, in, uh, interestingly, in bearish, they don't go by what's the decreased amount. They say number needed to treat is what they, uh, uh-huh. they used. And so what they're saying is if you – I believe they, the number was 2.5. So what they're saying is if you defasciculate, the number needed to treat was 2.5. So you have to treat every 2.5 people uh, for myalgia if you defasciculate. So it was – it's a pretty good number, but it's not great. But it definitely is proven to help a little bit. Yeah, that is very interesting. So another thing I was, uh, I, I wanted to uh, point out one more thing, uh, especially for fellow students about you know learning through this whole process of um, of fade and phase one block versus phase two block. And I just wanted to touch base with that too. And I had another interesting question that I found an answer to in Miller, and it was. Why does succinylcholine not cause fade like the non-depolarizers? Yeah. And so what was interesting is that non-depolarizing drugs actually attach to the presynaptic side of the synaptic cleft. And succinylcholine does not have as high as affinity for it. So when you do your train of four with succinylcholine, you know that you're going to have four even twitches. And so the reason for that is because every time you initiate a twitch, the exact amount of acetylcholine that comes out from the presynaptic side is exactly the same in all four twitches. But when you give something like Rock or VEC, it actually finds affinity for that presynaptic side as well as the postsynaptic side. So as you're doing your twitches, it won't let those vesicles pop the acetylcholine out because of the Rock or VEC or whatever non-depolarizer you're using to block those presynaptic uh, receptors. So I thought that was quite interesting too, is that it's all because of the presynaptic affinity that I just wanted to point out. 
I think that's a great point. It's super interesting. One thing I do want to switch gears towards as we wrap this uh, podcast up, let's touch on real quickly. Do you think sucks is going to be the drug of choice for rapid sequence inductions in the future? Um, I think it still will be. And the only reason I, I think this is because looking at a one of the largest studies on the Cochrane library, it's basically it's the article is just looking at the difference of rocaronium versus succinylcholine and which one's best for rapid sequence induction. Uh, and so they evaluated 53 studies and they just updated in 2015 the, yep. the latest recommendations. And basically what they came down to is succinylcholine always provided excellent intubating conditions. And this, these intubations all occurred within one minute or less, mind you. And so... Always. So, what does excellent intubating conditions mean? That means literally not a single movement in one in one minute. And rocaronium was a mix of okay, good, excellent conditions. And what they did find is that rocaronium usually did tend to cause, still cause diaphragmatic movement within a minute of the intubating dose. And so that's interesting. That you know, it's funny because rocaronium, if you don't know this, but the RO uh, for rocaronium stands for rapid onset curonium. And so even though it's called rapid onset curonium, it actually is not as rapid still as succinylcholine. And so RSI of choice, unless you can think of a contraindication, definitely want to try to use succinylcholine for the most ideal and best intubating conditions possible in the shortest amount of time. But still, in this study, what they did say is that even though my intubating conditions were not the best like succinylcholine, the clinicians found that intubating was still okay yeah. um, with rocaronium. So even though maybe they'll cough a little bit when I put the tube in, it still wasn't as bothersome. It, it, did, so, it didn't really prevent the clinician from being able to successfully perform the RSI. It just wasn't absolutely excellent like succinylcholine provided. Exactly. One of the thoughts that I think about in terms of, you know, there's there's what creates the quickest optimal intubating conditions, which is a consideration with RSI, the back end of that that I think about is how quickly does someone recover from succinylcholine versus rocuronium in a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation in a failed mm-hmm. airway, specifically with the advent and increasing availability of Sugamidex. Exactly. And, and that's a point that I emphasized in this recent uh, continuing education talk. In the package insert for Sugamidex, there's a fascinating study that basically uh, timed the difference of recovery from the administration of succinylcholine. The, the actual study was you give succinylcholine or rocuronium, and then it's uh, beginning at the reappearance of T2 to the recovery of a train of four ratio of 0.9, and that's either spontaneously after the administration of succinylcholine or that's giving rocuronium followed by sugamidex and it's after waiting three minutes of an intubating dose of rocuronium that uh, it was a quicker reversal time with rocuronium and sugamidex than spontaneous recovery of succinylcholine, mm-hmm. uh, which is very is interesting. Definitely to think true. About. Yeah, it's just that uh, unfortunately in this article they said that we can't include sugamidex in these studies because it's not widely available yet. And that's so true. That's why, and, and that's why they can't really make conclusions of that. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, it's still spotty across the United States in terms of 
who has access to Sugaminix or not. But it's something interesting. I think Sugaminix is probably one of the most significant uh, pharmacological changes in anesthesia practice, at least in the United States. I know it's been out in Europe, uh, you know, for a decade or more at this point, but um, Mm -hmm. I think it's probably been one of the bigger changes to anesthesia practice in the U.S., probably in the last 10 to 15 years. So it'll be interesting moving forward. I think think it's fascinating to see anesthesia practice continue to evolve. It's interesting to think about how to optimize RSI with succinylcholine while preventing some of the negative side effects. Or if uh, rocuronium will perhaps become the drug of choice for RSI in the future if Sugaminex is available, knowing that you can get a patient back breathing quicker with rocuronium and Sugaminex than spontaneously waiting for them to recover from, um, from succinylcholine. So it's a fascinating time, and I think there's going to be a lot more research coming out on this in the future. Oh, yes. And the last thing is, uh, just so you, everyone knows, is that this Cochrane study also states that now they're looking at possibly changing what the RSI dosaging that we use for rocuronium from 1.2 to 0.9 because a lot of clinicians don't use the 1.2 milligram per kilogram dose and they found no difference between 0.9 and 1.2. So I think we're heading towards a 1 milligram per kilogram rocuronium dosage as well. That is interesting. Um, a little bit less. Yeah. Clearly, there's other limitations. You know, when you just just to throw that out there, obviously, there's a context to everything. So the idea of immediately reversing someone with Sugaminex from a rocuronium RSI dose. And there's there's concerns and considerations with Sugaminex uh, that we should at least just uh, mention. We're not going to get into them, but um, mm-hmm. there's always context to everything. So, uh, well, Michael, this has been a really fascinating conversation on succinylcholine. Rounding off, um, what would you give in terms of just a summary for the top highlights that you want to touch on before we sound off? Uh, so top highlights I would, I would consider is is my patient, first thing I think about is, is my patient sick? And what is the sickness? Because a lot of time it's like a routine surgery. Is Are they immobile? Is there a muscular issue? So if there's a muscular issue, just don't use it. It's, it's safer if you can just avoid it. If you're going to the ICU, intubating someone is probably very sick and they need a tube now and they're maybe even getting resuscitated, maybe consider not using succinylcholine at all. So I definitely think about what's going on with the patient Think of a reason why those fetal nicotinic receptors, is there a possibility that they're being made in that patient because of lack of muscular movement? Think about, okay, is this person of hyperkalemia and why? Is is there renal failure that I'm not, uh, is the creatinine maybe 2.3? Oh, let me look at what the potassium level, was the potassium level drawn last week or was it drawn yesterday? Um, And another thing is, you know, I want to give this patient, if I was a patient getting surgery, I would not want myalgia. So I would really consider every patient saying, you know, I want to not, if I have to use succinylcholine or maybe this facility uses succinylcholine for everyone, I really want to prevent pain for them, especially if they're, they need to rehabilitate themselves uh, from the surgery. And so I'd really consider optimizing all my steps, giving the lidocaine, giving a defasciculating dose before you inject your propofol just to help time yourself better. And then also considering giving Toradol at the end of your case to really optimize the myalgia management. And let's say forget, it's not the end of the world. It's just that we're just trying to make the experience. It's all about the patient. So let's yeah. make the experience the best possible. And so that's why I really wanted to know what the truth is and what what's the best thing I can do. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and one of the other things you talked about in terms of reducing post-op myalgias 
and giving an appropriate dose with a defasciculation dose would be to increase that dose of succinylcholine to 1.5 milligrams per that's, kilogram. That's the other thing. Yep. So, give another. Yeah. Give not only 1.5. Right. Not only is it appropriate for the defasciculation to couple that with, but it also independently showed a decrease in post-op myalgias with a higher dose of sex. Yes. And then also, I, I love your emphasis on creating an optimal patient experience. Uh, yep. That's the that's my goal, and that's what I always want to make sure that's. Uh, my theme for everything that I do in practice in the future. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the deep dive on sucks. I'm so glad that we were able to chat about this and uh, get this out there for folks. Anything else that you want to say before we uh, sound off? No, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate sharing what I found. All right, man. Good to talk to you. I'll talk to you soon. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you.